FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us again in the studio today is Dr. Mark Donahue, who earned his medical degree from Sydney Uni in 1980, and he worked around the central coast of New South Wales honing his medical skills, where his interest in integrative medicine sparked because patients just weren't fitting into the black boxes of diagnoses and treatment which were drummed into him in medical school. Mark is highly revered as one of the fathers of integrative medicine in Australia, and he is always the vanguard for his patient's health. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Mark. How are you? I'm well, but feeling older every time I hear the introduction. It's clearly time that we change this around a little bit. We need to modernise you, Mark. We do. Part on the different Come into side. into the 21st century. <laughs> that central part just doesn't work for you. Mm. <laughs> Mark, today we're carrying on from our last podcast on POTS. So let's go through. Just a brief review. What's POTS? The briefest review is POTS is a tachycardia syndrome. It's people who I see, you know, I see with fatigue, weakness, and a distressing autonomic alteration, which sees their heart going into a kind of very rapid heart rate. Um, they pick it up as palpitations. They talk about it. Often it goes along with things like sweating, poor quality of sleep. There's a whole array of things that go with this. And POTS has become a super popular acronym for uh, what it means is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. However, it's become a catch-all phrase for a lot of different conditions that I'd love to just break open a little bit today. At its purest, POTS is just a fast heart rate. You uh, say at rest, sitting or, sta- uh, sitting or lying, you've got a heart rate, say, of 70, 80 or 90. You stand up, and if in that first 10 minutes of standing up, the heart rate without n- any activity goes up by 30 beats a minute in an adult or 40 beats a minute if you're a teenager, then that is purely the definition of POTS. You don't have to do anything more. It's a test that can be done in the home. You can get people to do this and just take the pulse rate every minute for that 10 minutes and get a very, very clear separation of POTS. That is the kind of headline of it. The breaking it down is into subcategories where some of those people keep their blood pressure normal. The majority of people with chronic illness also drop their blood pressure at the same time that the pulse rate is up. And you'll often see a blood pressure go from, say, the lowish end of 110, 110 on 60 or 70. They stand up and it drops to 80 on 50 and they're feeling dizzy and unwell and then they're sweating and then they just have to sit down. There are also tachycardia people whose blood pressure is normal or high, doesn't vary one, one iota, 
And that also is true POTS, that is pure tachygearrhythmia, and you still have the same diagnosis, but there are many different treatments compared to those that drop their blood pressure. And there are even hypertensive people, which we probably all know, the people whose heart rate never seems to drop, goes up with the slightest um, stress or slightest push, slightest irritation, and it goes up rapidly, as does the blood pressure. And these are the kind of type A of always the pulse is high, the heart is overbeating, it's too, too strong a response to a kind of catecholamine. So it covers a range of things. We're going to limit it to abnormalities of the vascular system with a fast heart rate. And then we can break that down a little bit as to what if your blood pressure is dropping? What if your blood pressure is stable? How do we slow down a heart to make it run more efficiently? So today, we're going to break that down into what's the different types of open quotes, the kind of air quotes, POTS, what do we do as practitioners about each of those different types? What are the treatment options and what's effective and ineffective? And so we're in an area, cardiologists hate it. Cardiologists always think, I'm going to come to a conclusion about this. I know what this is going to be. And routinely they'll say, there is no cardiovascular disease. There is no damage here. You don't have heart disease. Go home and rest. And Usually what they'll say is don't stress yourself, which is, of course, a stressful thing when a person has got heart yeah. symptoms. Don't stress yourself forever. Yeah. You have got heart symptoms. You think you might be dying. And that's one really important thing. A lot of the patients, when they drop their blood pressure, have this sense, what we love to call in medicine, a sense of impending doom. Mm. You know, mm. Like every time I come to do a podcast here, there's a sense of impending doom. And they say, I feel like I'm going to die. Now, they're not going to die. You know, this is a fast heart rate. It's 120, 130 beats. You don't know that. that. That's when it... <laughs> right. But there, that does give a little bit of a clue because when blood pressure drops, the body's response is, hell, I've lost blood somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's usually very bad news in evolutionary terms. So that sense of impending doom is, in fact, a very reasonable response of the body to say, where's my blood pressure? Where's my fuel supply? What's happened? And so that's where many people literally fall to the ground. Lots of people with the um, hypotensive POTS keep on collapsing, keep on having these syncopal attacks. And weirdly, they go to hospital. The hospital says, nothing wrong with you. We'll just stick a saline drip in, two litres of saline. And these people are bounding out saying, well, that's curative. The doctors in the hospital interpret that as, well, that's a placebo effect. So it just proves that these people are crazy doesn't prove that at all. You know, two litres of Transient doesn't mean placebo. Yeah, that's right. Mind you, if it's repeated, I guess the whole thing is that you need to prove to somebody that uh, a doctor can only see what a doctor can see. Yes. And if they can't see it, how do you know it's happened? Um, so monitoring, you know, halter monitors, yep. um, things like that. There um, are there are uh, these new blood pressure monitors. Right? The, so the home... The home blood pressure yeah. monitoring. The Hell, trouble, you've got to watch these days. Uh, well, you have got that, but when you're monitoring blood pressure, you can't get away from the fact that the sphig has to expand and it hurts, and you know when you're being monitored. So it never got over the white coat hypertension as, uh, as much as we wanted. This is white coat hypotension. But... If it keeps on inflating every hour at night, it also disturbs sleep for that night. And so we have the complexity of how do you ever find out what the blood pressure is really doing without your measurement interfering with the very process? We can get the, um, the watches and things following the heart rate and making sure there's dipping of the heart rate, making sure that the um, interbeat variability, which is uh, the heart rate variability, mm. is 
expanded at night. So there are indirect measures we can get. But the best and simplest thing, as you said, is a halter monitor. Put something on that just watches the pulse rate all the way through the day. I've got to say that when the halter monitors are done, they report saying there's no cardiovascular disease, but you know there are no ventricular ectopics. There are none of those, which we don't think there are. But it is interesting to see that kind of heart rate variability. But now you can do more on a watch. You know, a good sports watch will do that measurement better than the others because you've got to wear chest monitors and it varies your day around. Mm. But I th- I'm just, I would say nearly everybody who's got what seems to be POTS, that rapid heart rate rise with or without blood pressure variation, deserves to see a cardiologist. Why? Because there are serious conditions, adrenal conditions and vascular conditions that can be confused with this. And the best thing that I think happens is the good cardiologists say, no, this is POTS and it's not part of my area of expertise. Go back and try the following XXX, which we'll talk about today. The worst cardiologists, in my opinion, are ones that want to go hammer and tongs until they prove every last detail of what's going on with this person. And $25,000 later, and a lot of interventions like tilt table testing and other testing that leaves people sick for days or weeks afterwards, they will pursue it till the bitter end. And so one of the jobs, I think, of us as integrative doctors and of uh, non-medical practitioners is to be aware that the 90% likelihood is that this is a benign condition that we can go and help the person look after, but we've got to take the curse off it by having a cardiologist say, yep, this is nothing serious, but stop them from going down that road of in, you know interminable investigations but that Im- lead nowhere. But importantly, you've got, you know, what, 3 to 5% of the Australian population with um, atrial fib, yeah. which requires treatment or you're at risk of stroke. Yeah. You know, there are certain conditions that we've got to be aware of to to differentially diagnose from. So is the hallmark that it's a normal sinus rhythm with no decompensation, a normal ST segment, um, a normal QRS complex? Standard standard cardiograph or a 24-hour monitor gives you a little bit of a hint in those areas. So the answer is yes. If there are abnormalities on the electrocardiogram, if there are conduction defects along the way, then those are things we pay attention to. A lot of the medications used by doctors interfere with that conduction and they slow the heart by by particular tricks. But that's the reason for the cardiologist. I think the world of AFib is changing rapidly as we get more and more of the monitors on wrists that are really capable of picking up periods of atrial fibrillation. We're seeing way more people. Now, the problem with that is we're seeing so many more people with it that we never knew had atrial fibrillation that it may be a little bit like screening for breast cancer or many things. When you screen, you see, oh, wow, there's five times as many as we ever thought. It may be relatively normal for people under stress, under certain nutritional conditions to flip into AFib and then flip out of it. Mm, Paroxysmal. Yeah, and we don't know those people. We don't know if our treatment helps. We do know our treatment helps when a person is in persistent atrial fibrillation and the risk of the clotting, as you said, the risk of uh, embolism up to the brain, we know very well that the anti-clotting and the anticoagulation factors do a good job in that area of preventing the stroke and the negative outcome. We're much less good at getting the rhythm back in. And, you know, we go brutally from cardioversion, you know, electrical stimulation of the heart. There's lots and lots of drugs around. A lot of them have a lot of negative side effects. And so you've got to be careful that you're treating the right person. I have dozens of my patients 
with intermittent atrial fibrillation who, if they keep their magnesium up, maintain sinus rhythm for long, long periods of time, often months. They get themselves under stress. They stop taking their magnesium. Their diet falls away and suddenly they're flipping right back Mm, into mm, AFib. mm. What happens? They go and see their doctor then who thinks that they've been in atrial fibrillation the whole time. So I I do think that there are are ways of saying to a person, before we get on to long-term treatment of atrial fibrillation, let's just make sure that it is a problem and you can't fix it very, very simply. And that use of the magnesium, you know, that 300 milligrams or so a day, people who are inclined to take it can remain in sinus rhythm if they don't have a cardiac defect in the first place. So slowing the heart and getting it to fall back into rhythm is often a matter of stress management, yoga, um, you know, meditation, people having the tools to be able to reduce the catecholamine a tendency to push the pulse up not getting them to the point where they flip into atrial fibrillation all the time. But you need a cardiologist to say yeah. this is or is not a problem. Yeah, and yeah. I think that that's the point that when you see a person who's saying, look, my heart is going off, you want to have that authoritative position to say, this is not a serious condition. It's not atrial fibrillation. It needs to be managed. But now you go down into the belly of the beast and you figure out what type of POTS is this? Is this a vascular responses at hypotensive, what do we do about it? And that's, I think that's what we should do today is say, once the cardiologist has said, I'm not sure that I can help, why don't you try fludrocortisone or why don't you try ivabradine or why don't you try, they have their favorite drugs. Once they've said that, could we as practitioners say, okay, thank you, let's start a little bit lower level. Let's get stress management. Let's get diet. Let's get magnesium. Let's do simple things first and find out what we've accomplished there. If it's not a serious disease, POTS is entirely a matter of recovering from the symptoms. If you are not getting the tachycardia, if you're not dropping your blood pressure, then that's not playing a part in your health. So we can, as practitioners, do very simple things to bring the heart rate down, to bring the blood pressure up, and we should learn those to be able to say to a person, here's how you fix it. Now, the disclaimer here is one thing. There are patients that I see, I see a lot of chronic fatigue syndrome patients, they look to be pure POTS. They stand up and their pulse rate goes high and the blood pressure drops low and you think, oh, this is easy. I'm going to fix this person and they're going to be well. There are dozens of my patients now who I've fixed with the with the POTS. The heart rate is stable, the blood pressure is stable, and they are no better than they were before. So I don't want to get into this thing of it's all POTS. POTS becomes just a throwaway term that we say, oh, you've got POTS as if, what can we do about it? What we do know is that half of all POTS patients are triggered by a viral infection. Lots of chronic fatigue syndrome patients are triggered by a viral infection. There are two different things going on here. One of them can be neurological autonomic, but fixing that peripheral thing doesn't always fix the underlying condition. So you need that disclaimer to say, even when you get POTS right, Plenty of patients may still be unwell for a post-viral reason that has nothing to do with their vascular system. When you've got a normal sinus rhythm and and the cardiologist has given the all clear that there's nothing heart-related driving yeah. this condition, no pathology of the no heart. pathology of the of the heart um, or associated vessels. Um, yeah. What about things like baroreceptor? Do I say pathology dysfunction? Yeah. Um, issues with you know, renal um, reabsorption, natriuretic hormone. Yep. So how far does one investigate before saying it's okay? 
Uh, you know, for instance, I'm really interested in the link between POTS and um, IBS. Yeah. So there you're talking Very about the gut, brain, heart, vagal nerve yeah. Very um, link. I Look, I think that you've hit right on the issue that once you know it's not the heart, it's the um, control system of the heart. It's the way the body interprets a stress response and the old, you know, Hanselio type stress response of it could be physiological, viral, it could be emotional, it could be just about anything. But the way the bodies respond in a stress response has high variability in the community. And a lot of the time what we're trying to pick is what's the stimulus that tells the body to go into this state? Can we undo that stimulus? Now, sometimes it's really straightforward. You do, you know, you assess them nutritionally. They've got really low magnesium levels, a surprising number of people. Serum? Uh, yeah, no, serum, uh, I do the red cell magnesium still. Yeah. I know that the serum and, and those correlate, but the red cell is, I think, better. But low red cell magnesium can be a bugger of a thing to pick up. We do think that in chronic fatigue syndrome, there are these things called magnesium calcium channelopathies and sodium potassium channelopathies, where the body just struggles to keep the intracellular magnesium at a sufficiently high level. But you can use the mass effect. You can just say, here's an extra 300 or 400 milligrams of magnesium, and you can force feed the body a bit of magnesium so that it is there to balance the calcium channel. And a lot of the work is being done now to say that magnesium threonate may be better in doing that job than magnesium glycinate, partly neuromuscular, partly autonomic. But, and the threonate at the moment is just way more expensive. So we tend to use the, the you know, the cheapest but and easiest available. With, we saw, I mean, we saw that with lipoic acid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember the day when it was just, it was exorbitant. It was yeah. worse or better than gold. Um, and they come and under then, control and eventually. Then, and then bang. It, yeah. Almost overnight, it it quartered in price. Yeah. So, well, kind, there, kind of like Viagra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that has a patent issue, and I'm not sure that magnesium's got a patent going for it yet. But I, I do think that you've got at least simple tools like that where you can say, if the magnesium is low, treat the low magnesium. It's still pathology. It's just not heart disease. It's autonomic. There are people, the COMT um, super sensitives, the ones that can't clear, clear the catecholamines from their um, from their receptors, they're always a little bit tricky. They're always over-responders in a particular way to stressors. And so a moderate to us stress, in my mind, a moderate stress of standing kicks in to suddenly push the heart rate to 140 beats a minute. And the pulse rate and the blood pressure are therefore fighting against each other to try and maintain fuel supply. So when, when that happens, when you can find your identifiable thing, the other thing I would point out over and over is vegans, people who become vegan and vegetarian, a year or two after they become vegan or vegetarian, watch out for the B12 levels that do drop away. There are a lot of methylation issues that go on in the background here. And people do head into vegan diets, feel great, and then find that the running out of the B12, when the stores kind of run out, they start to get methylation issues going on. They get viral issues going on. They respond poorly to viral infections. And then one day you get this kind of a response. Now, if you can get in nice and early, simply restoring B12 levels has helped a lot of patients get their rhythm back. It sounds like a dance thing, I know, but mm. it helps them get their rhythm back and it helps stabilize the heart. 
Now, it may be via, you know, methylation of catecholamines. It may be for a whole lot of different reasons, but we should always focus on there's a whole person there. This is not a heart with a, with a high pulse rate. This is a person whose heart is responding not pathologically, but in an, abnor in an abnormal way to stresses. So I, those are the divisions. I, there are some easy, simple things you get out of the way. The other thing is there are people out there who believe that you've got to drink five litres of water a day to be, you know, wash your kidneys out. And those overhydrators, the people who are just taking the advice of drink water, 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 wash out their sodium, they wash out their potassium. The urine can never be as dilute as the water you're drinking. And you've got to be very, very sure that you're matching it with electrolytes if you're going to go for right. those high amounts. Right. And so the washout effect is some people just have low sodium because in the passionate belief that they're going to purge toxins from the body and make the kidneys work, they do make the kidneys work, but the kidneys are working to make the most dilute urine they possibly can and often lose that fight. So bringing people down on the water that they're drinking, two to three litres is fine for water. If you're going to go higher, you have to have salt. You have to have the electrolytes in there to make sure that you are not just washing out all the nutrients and the electrolytes from your um, food. If you, when you're doing your, you know, your bun, your blood urea nitrogen and your UEAs, so your um, urea, electrolyte and albumin, yep. um, are these typically normal or do you, or do you find that they are indeed low in sodium? Yeah, there are, it's not just sodium. So there are, there are two groups that I would separate. There, lots of these patients have low urea, ah. uh, very low urea. So they sit there with low urea the whole time. When it comes to low blood pressure, then low sodium is typically the thing. So we have this range where we, we call sodium, say, 135 up. These are people who sit on 135, 136, 134. So they'll get the occasional asterisk of low sodium, yep. but they're sitting at the very bottom of the range. There's a whole separate group, and I have some spectacular patients in these areas where the potassium is sitting at, say, 3.2, 3.1, a normal range of around about, say, 3.5 up to 5.5. They're sitting below that range, but you give them potassium, and say, giving the old slow case, 600 milligrams, you give them potassium, some of these people will take up to, say, 8 or 9 or 10 of the slow K per day and still only get to 3.6, 3.5. A lot of them lose it straight out through the urine, and we don't understand the reasons why. A lot of them may just exist at that low level, and the body keeps setting it back there. So the low-sodium group are by far the most common group in this area. The low-potassium group tend to have the arrhythmias that go because the potassium is required to stabilise mm, that. Mm, mm. And being at 3.2 or 3.3... In a hospital setting, when they go to hospital, they go, ah, oh, it's mild hypokalemia. That's fine if it's only for an hour. It's not fine if that's your whole life. A subgroup of these to pay attention to is those with diarrhea. Lots of people don't mention that they put up with going to the toilet with loose stools three or four or five times a day. And they just don't mention it because it's part of the background of their life. If people have chronic diarrhea... Then there's a source of electrolyte loss. The electrolyte loss. loss is obvious and you do something about the gut and when the gut is settled and the diarrhea is stopped, they now have a bit of a chance of not losing their electrolytes out the south end. So those are, you know, those are subdivisions that we want to just mm. keep in mind that we focus on the heart 
And the things that we're going to talk about next are what can you do for the heart? But the whole body owns that heart. And the heart often is just, you know, as we've heard in many of the biocidical conferences, it's just reflecting what's going on through the rest of the body. The vagus nerve and the brain and the heart all have their inbuilt rhythms to try and keep you from doing a bad thing called dying. And often you just have to respect the, that this doesn't seem a sensible choice, but the, it may be the least worst choice yeah. that's available it's, to it's the body. It's very similar to, you know, watching those goats that startle. Mm. You know, they just lie down. They, they yeah. just freeze yep. um, upon start, the startle reflex. Um, I'm also really interested in this low potassium. Well, my take on the potassium is I think that it's probably pathological loss of potassium because you do see in these mm. people typically that they're peeing a lot of potassium out. Now, the, the job of the body in a sense for sodium and potassium is sodium stays in the, extra vas in the vascular tissue in, outside the cell and potassium shunted inside the cell. If there's a failure of that shunting, that sodium-potassium pump, then there's too much potassium in the uh, outside and the body keeps on excreting it, just passive excretion through the kidneys. We haven't got a good answer to this yet. We know that the potassium goes somewhere, but why a person would be on five bananas and eight slow K a day to barely scratch in with the potassium that's able to keep them going is crazy. And when those people stop it, they become super sensitive responders to a whole lot of things. The mildest stress will push them right over the edge. A food reaction will see them sick for days or weeks. So there's something about electrolyte loss, which is either a, a surrogate marker for something going wrong with the autonomic nervous system, or it's the cause of something going on with a hyper-responsiveness, super-responsiveness of, um, of the nerve endings. Does high catecholamines have an effect on tubular reabsorption of electrolytes, like the proximal tubule, the, link, uh, the loop of Henle. Has there, is there any correlation between hmm. extraordinarily high catecholamines, which is right. seen in some people with POTS, yep. as you said, the comp tissues, um, and lot wasting of potassium? And the answer to Instead that is, I don't know. It's a good it's a good thought about what happens with potassium wasting. The um, catecholamines work on every single tissue in a coordinated response. They stop bowel peristalsis. They they dilate pupils. There, there are a whole mm. lot of effects. Mm. And one of the things that you can sacrifice at that time is your renal function for excretion. If you had the choice, you would not stop MP while being chased by a big cat. And so there is a shutdown of functions that can be put off to a later time to focus on shunting blood to the muscles, to the central nervous system, to, to places where your survival may be at risk. And that's why I come back to that thing of, I feel like I'm dying. The body will do extraordinary things to stop you feeling like you're dying, and it will sacrifice a lot of normal functions along the way. Okay, so we've been through a few of the nutrients. Um, and we've been through a few of the pathologies, right? Pathologies, so that was just to get those out of the way and say, if there's diarrhea, pay attention to the diarrhea. If there is a kidney problem, pay attention to the kidneys. Mm. If the cardiologist says, no, this is a cardiac disorder, pay attention to that. So there are maybe 20% that will be successfully managed in a way that has nothing to do with POTS whatsoever. A thing that's going around in my mind is what's happening with the actual organization at the tissue level. So I was I was really interested reading that there's also a link with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, EDS. Yeah. And that fascinates me. Like I, I know that there's a connective tissue disorder going on there. Yeah. But, but it's, it's interesting. Hang on, hang on, be careful. Ehlers-Danlos 
is a variant of connective tissue. It's collagen variants, which are from super flexible to very, very tight. Yeah. So it's not like a disease like you catch Ehlers-Danlos or it's a fatal disease. It's a variant of normal super flexibility of the joints, recurrent dislocation. You run the risks of things in the extreme like uh, dissecting aneurysms yeah. and the like. Injuries. So those kind of things almost universally are related to the collagen in the blood vessels and this tendency for collagen to pull. To, uh, the it's not just in the blood vessels. No, it's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, 60% of your protein in your body is collagen and the flexibility of the blood vessels is one of the reasons that there's a problem for people with EDS and Marfan syndrome and the related disorders. But one thought there is when you are pushed and you stand and you are tall and you've got blood vessels that tend to expand there's pooling that goes on in the extremities. So there's a relatively easy, straightforward way of thinking about it, and that is if you've got veins and arteries that just expand one under gravity, where does your blood go? To your legs. To your feet, yeah. And so the Ehlers-Danlos and that group are very well managed by putting on restrictive um, uh, constriction of the stocking, uh, stockings uh, for the legs, that if you can stop the pooling in the legs by putting an artificial constriction around it, that keeps the blood vessels undilated in that area and gives you a pool of blood, which is more available to the oh, heart. So you're thinking ho um, hooves and horses, and I'm thinking hooves and zebras. Right. I'm wondering about, you know, visceral um, tissue reorganization, uh, not reorganization, vi visceral tissue organization as well as the um, right. Direct actions. You're not thinking of hysteria where the uterus roams <laughs> no, around the body no. to lodge in certain areas and lodges in the heart. Not so, quite okay. that. So not it's quite not quite that, that flexible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the, look, an answer is for the Ellis Danlos, remember to ask if they're super flexible. I make the mistake all the time of looking at the phenotype in front of me and saying, you don't look flexible. And I say, were you ever very flexible? And I go, ever very flexible. Look. And they bend the thumb back and they kind of show the arms yeah. bending the other way. Yeah. Just because they put on weight, does it, it gives you the impression you're not the Marfany type person that I, uh, yeah, I've always known about. So that's an important question to ask. Really important because there's um, gastrointestinal issues, long curly loops of bowel. There's dysautonomias that go with that. And there is the whole issue of how do you maintain your blood pressure when the collagen uh, that you rely on for a certain tissue integrity can be super flexible and let you down at the wrong times. And there are now, Ehlers-Danlos groups are coming out of the woodwork, so their their hallmark is the zebra, as we said. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they have a lot of these odd conditions that are tied together with a common collagen variant. And so I made the mistake overall of saying, oh, it's a d collagen disorder. It's not. Uh -huh. It's something that in the 21st century, when we're sitting up in front of computers all the time, we stand up, we go to the toilet, that's a difficult thing for them to manage. And they do get the uh, postural or the static problems. They're more than low blood pressure. And as the blood pressure drops, the heart goes, hey, where's my blood? And the brain says, where's my blood? And then the pulse rate goes up to 130, 140 beats a minute to compensate for the dropping blood pressure. And they're ones that we I would separate and say, heck, here's our first answer, that if they've got EDS and they look to be the classics where the blood pressure is dropping, then we could do something about the blood pressure just by putting the stockings on and see what kind of a gain is made. There is a movement in America to have these kind of special inflatable, very, very comfortable stockings and restrictions around the arms and legs precisely for this reason. So Peter Rowe has mm. got these got these things together. They give a guarantee. You put them on, you try them, and you see if you restore function. 
And in the EDS group, they seem to be really the, a very good non-pharmacological method of doing it. Others with EDS, interestingly, from my perspective anyway, do well with yoga. Now, I don't know why. I always think of inversions and things as very, very tricky things to do, but they respond well to yoga. And I don't know if that is a kind of reconditioning of the asanas being something about the reconditioning. I don't know if it's breath control, but they do seem to do well symptomatically with that. I can't tell you why. It's just an observation at the moment. But they, that's the first subgroup to say, if it is the blood pressure dropping, and that's driving the whole thing, whether that's low vascular volume or whether that, for other reasons, or whether that's Ehlers-Danlos and Marfan's type uh, disorders, try the non-pharmacological, try the stockings, try the restrictive um, stockings and see if there's a significant improvement. And if there is, that gets you one step towards the recovery of function there. And so when you stand up, you don't automatically go to ground. Speaking of yoga, is there any evidence that you've ever come across looking at convert, I don't know how you'd measure this, but conversion of angiotensin one to two with breathing rate or depth or rhythm? <laughs> this is something you should ask my wife, who's been 30 years as a, as a yoga teacher and is uh, doing her studies in that area now. The, yoga seems to affect almost every aspect of our physiology. And that's the thing that keeps on stunning me. A strange thing for me. I'd love some... I'd love somebody to do this sort of stuff where you can actually show biochemical changes huh? from an exercise, yeah. like then, right then. It's, it's been done, as I keep on having that pointed out by my darling wife. <laughs> the stuff is done. It's done primarily by women, yeah. and women in the research community are regarded very, very lowly, and the research never bubbles <sighs> through to the top where the boys Don't take all the credit. Here. Right. So having got that out of the way... There are things in yoga, and I'm convinced that breath has part of it, the breath is a part of it, and that movement is a part of it. There are signals to the body about the muscles moving in the chest, about good inspiration, about the cycle of breathing that is a coordinating factor for the cardiovascular system as well. So we may not think we have direct control of the heart. We possibly do have some direct control, but via breath and via positions, I think the Ayurvedics and uh, others would fall back on that mm. as a primary method of treatment. I am not well enough trained in that area. You know my thing. Herbs and uh, and some of the complementary therapies. I have to go back to school when I finish medicine. It's only a few years down the line and become better at the things that I didn't know. But that's, you know, let's just put that to one side. The The yoga is worth doing. Meditation and mindfulness for people who are super responders to any stress. Give them tools so that the nervous system does not fall into that rapid panic response of the heart rate going up for no particular reason and no control of it. So I know that you work in well with naturopaths that you trust. Yes. Um, with regards to POTS treatments, you don't prescribe herbs, but they prescribe herbs. They do. What herbs do they prescribe that you find work well in your patients, like Terminalia Arjuna? Um, I love know. it when you talk dirty, <laughs> Andrew. I love it when you talk dirty. You know, good old Hawthorne. And yeah. importantly here in, in my past, I've never treated POTS. Um, but in certain cases of heart rhythm and, and inotropic issues, um, you know, uh, the hawthorn leaves right. rather than the popularized berries, 
uh, because of their flavonoid content. I, I've been a fan of those, or at least mixing them. Right. So um, you so do you do touch things? on my weak spot that I do have to hand that off to people who are trained in herbs. But surely what, they would have told you. They do. They feedback, and I read I read what they're doing. They send the letters back to me. I send the letters to them. The one the one that. I am interested in, because it was put it forward by Peter Rowe in America, was the use of licorice, non-deglycorized or whatever that term is. That normal term, licorice. Normal licorice. Um, what you have, as I understand it, as a problem with licorice is it may raise blood pressure. That's the very thing that is being it's, used. It's, it's, and it's it not is, in everybody, though. You know, right. you've got to use high doses and watch them. Yeah. So th my job there was, you know, with a person to cause who's a problem, got, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> a person who's got low blood pressure with this pots. How do we raise their blood pressure safely? So the standard medical advice is increase to about three liters of water per oh. day with plenty of salt. Four grams of additional salt. It's a lot of salt to put into a person, but the use of licorice seems to be able to do part of that job. I think it is sodium retention and that licorice is able to maintain that. And it maybe that's the way that it brings up the, um, the fluid volume. So people get out of that sense of, I feel like I'm dying. With the licorice and the stability of the blood pressure, they no longer feel like they're dying. The licorice and the blood pressure don't always fix the fast heart rate. And so the thing I'm always looking for, the classic herb that always fixed the heart rate was the poison digitalis. And so we use that on prescription as lenoxin. And lenoxin can be an effective way of slowing the heart, poisoning it just that little bit so it slows and beats more rhythmically. And you can get rhythm back in some of those people. There are probably dozens of herbs that do the same kind of job of slowing the heart and allowing each each heartbeat to be more effective. So I work along that line of up your fluids, up the sodium that goes in there. For the people who are low in potassium, we measure that. People low in potassium, you've always got to remember to put back the potassium. Otherwise, you get more heart rhythms by that extra litre or two of uh, water every day. Quick uh, question, a dose of uh, ditch? Depends on the person. I'm, the people I'm talking about is 62.5 micrograms, micrograms, which is yeah. the yep. Lenoxin PG yep. is the kind of brand name for it. But it's low dose. It's it's very rarely up in the very high dose area. But small for my patients, small amounts of almost anything. The di the only just exception to, to that them. is magnesium. Magnesium just you can shovel the stuff in, and what you're always trying to get around is can you deliver enough without causing diarrhoea? Yeah, unless um, and, and renal disease is the other issue. So, I think it's always wise if you're going to give, be giving high doses of of any mineral to always check their glomer their GFR and and yeah. and. Remember the Some other the, the last 40 year history of medicine is high dose calcium un, unreplaced by <laughs> anything else. Right. And now we find, oops, well, it's, it's a mistake. <laughs> but what's happening now is they're blaming the kind of complementary doctors for doing it. It was it on was standard. everyone's agenda. Yeah. This is the danger of supplementation. It's the danger of stupid supplementation where you give one nutrient at the exclusion of everything else. So we've got those. When it comes to slowing the heart rate, this is something I want to come and ask your opinion on. And the the heart rate slowing for us is you use propranolol or a beta blocker, you stop the adrenaline effects on the body. B uh, beta lock is a very common drug that we use. New drug is called Ivabradine, which slows the sinus rhythm without much else. But I know there's got to be other things that do it. And so that exploration of Yoga, what are the vagal nerve stimulation. Vagal nerve stimulation. You're quite right. And I, <laughs> I remember this from the recent conference. <laughs> and did I implement it? So no, those, 
Those are ways that I think are the. I, I, I really the think one of the most useful, ubiquitously useful uh, techniques for. It, I would just think every naturopath should learn is vagal nerve stimulation. Mm. We are out of time, Mark. I'd love to speak to you further about this. You and I will go and have a coffee, the, hopefully the, not against yeah, our coffee. The, the trouble is <laughs> that it opens up more doors every time we talk. <laughs> we have 40 podcasts on pots. I don't think it's going to be very popular. I, We've got to terminate this at some time, but at I, some point. But I do always learn something from you, and, and it, at the very least... You've corrected me on the terminology that I was using, a lax terminology. And I think we we really need to be very clear about our terminology. Yes. Like in, if it's adrenal insufficiency, it's that. It's yes. not adrenal fatigue. Yes. We need to we, we need to leave behind these old they, they might roll off the tongue, but they're incorrect and they yes. lead us down a very dangerous path with what we're how we're treating, we're treating the brain yes. with chronic stress. Um, as, uh, you know, these sort of terms that we need to leave behind, and I thank you very much. We, or all our listeners, I think, would thank you very much for keeping us on that tight path of doing the right thing, not just in correct vernacular, but for our patients as yeah. well. Thank you so much for taking us through the rest of POTS today. It's been a pleasure again. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Donoghue. Join us for our new podcast series, FX Omics. We'll be exploring the new technologies of integrative medicine, including genomics, metabolomics, the microbiome, and many more fields that are transforming healthcare. We're focusing on how they apply to practitioners and how we can incorporate them into our patient care. We aim to make these exciting and sometimes challenging fields relevant to you and your practice. Search for FX Omics on your favourite podcast platform and we look forward to your company.